Well, the day has finally arrived. It has been the most talked about event in our history since the final military battle that cemented us as the most powerful empire in the world. Everyone's been talking about it for weeks, ever since the announcement had gone out to everyone. It was made clear that everyone had to be there. Everyone had to come for today's big announcement. And the rumors had been swirling for weeks as to what this meant and why we had to be there. And the only thing we knew for sure was there was something really big right outside the city because we saw it as we traveled in the day before. But what exactly it was and why we had to be here, we were left wondering. Well, whatever the day brings, I'm glad to have a couple of my friends here with me. Events like this are always better when you have people to experience them with. And, and so we head out this morning. We don't want to be late. And as we're walking towards the location of the event just outside the city, we realize that everyone did show up. There are thousands and thousands of people walking in the same direction as we are heading outside the city gates. It's hard to navigate. We can't even, it's hard to even stay together as we navigate the crowds and through the twisting streets of the city. And as we exit the walled part of the city, we catch a glimpse of, of something shining in the morning sun. We're still not exactly sure what it is, but the object that had been covered the day before was now shining brightly in front of us. And as we get closer and closer, we begin to see it in more detail, and we begin to have an idea of why we've been called here today. We come as close as we can, but there's a sea of people between us and the object, and I look at both my friends but we don't even have words to share with each other. All we can do is stand there and stare up at the largest image of a Babylonian god that we had ever seen in our lives. That's the way the morning went for three friends that we met a couple weeks ago in Daniel chapter 1, named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At least that's the way I think it went in my head. The text isn't really clear. All right? But... Um, today we're going to be jumping into Daniel chapter 3. And when you think about the book of Daniel as we continue our series, um, you think of two stories, right? You think of Daniel and the lion's den, first and foremost. We'll get there in a couple weeks. And you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. And if you've grown up in church like I did, you have learned this story since you were little, sitting in Sunday school, and you may know it forwards and backwards. But whether you've heard it a hundred times or you're going to hear it for the first time this morning, let me tell you, it's not just a little kid's story. It's a story that has something for all of us, that has a lot of connection to our lives today as we experience them. And so to get started this morning, I really want to just jump into the text and, and, and read this chapter for you because I don't want to leave anything out. And, and so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab that. You can open it to Daniel chapter 3. If you don't, grab one in the seat, uh, under the seat in front of you and you can open up to uh, page 721, and uh, you can follow along there or on your device or tablet as well. And I want to read this chapter. Uh, it's a lot of fun, so join me here in verse chapter 1. Verse chapter 1? Chapter 3, verse 1. Let's try that one. All right. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, prefects governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication 
of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. This is where we left our friends. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing fire. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve you, serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to bow down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers from his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not, even, had not harmed their bodies, nor was a, a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to 
give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What an amazing and and fun chapter to read and to look at this morning. And it's packed with different things that we could talk about. There's a lot of different applications that we could pull from this chapter this morning. You know, we can talk about taking a stand. We could talk about, you know, idols in our lives. We could talk about um, God and his rescuing of us. We could talk about how he's with us when we're in the fiery trials of life. And and those are, are all some really good things. But you know, as I sat with this chapter this week and over the last couple of weeks, you know, I was trying to think, you know, why did God include this in his historical count here in the book of Daniel? And what was it supposed to mean to the people that first read the book of Daniel? And what do you want us to walk away with today? And as I sat with that this week, the idea, one idea kept coming back to me as I was thinking about and wrestling through where to go with this passage this morning. It was the idea of compromise. And for our purposes this morning, I want to define compromise this way. Compromise is just any choice that moves God from his rightful place in our lives and puts something else above it. And so for these guys this morning here in Daniel chapter 3, they, were, they found themselves living in a pretty godless culture that was continually trying to get them to do this, to compromise, to, to stop being the God-fearing Jews that they had been raised to be and to become more self-sufficient Babylonians like those that were all around them. The the Babylonians told them, you have to look like us, and you have to think like us, and you have to act like us, and you have to be like us. And everything from the food that you eat to the names that we're going to give you to uh, the education you're going to receive and now the religion that you're mandated to practice. And I think to understand um, this culture a little bit more, we just have to understand a little bit more about the guy who was at the top because it seems to trickle down as it does in most societies and what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do was take a whole bunch of different people groups, you saw it mentioned in the chapter, and, and form them into one loyal and united empire. And these were people that he took forcibly under his control. And so at this point in history, he was the most powerful ruler that the, the world had ever seen. And he had conquered almost all of the Middle East and chased out the two powers that had been there before. And, and as you look at his life, the parts of it that are, are shown here in God's word in, in, in Daniel, uh, one of the things that you notice about him, and even you see it here in chapter 3, is that um, he recognized the reality uh, or, or their supposed reality of the gods of their culture, the gods that they worshipped in Babylon. But he was not one to be controlled by the gods or one to really be held accountable to the gods. He, he was kind of his own man. Like he was a self-made guy. This was his empire that he built. And he was the highest authority in his own life. And you can see that in, in verse 15 there where, where it says, you know, he says, what God will be able to save you from my hand? That even his choices and his decisions were going to trump what the gods of their day wanted. And you can see it in the way he ruled. He ruled with an iron fist and it was his way or death, right? And his, his go-to punishment was chopping people up into little pieces and turning their houses into a pile of rubble. I don't know why that was his go-to, but we saw it in the last chapter. We see it again here in this chapter. And he brings a new one in this this chapter, the the fiery furnace. He he loved to uh, make people do what he wanted or end their lives. And and we also see 
kind of his high view of himself, the, the exalted view he had of himself in this statue that he had built. I mean, why would a guy spend his hard-earned fortune that he just took from all these congregations and build a 90-foot statue of gold? Now, it was probably, um, probably a wooden statue that was coated or plated in gold. That seemed to be the way they made large statues in that time period. But this right here, this light shines up about 15 feet. So this statue that he made is six times taller than this, and it's nine feet wide. And why would he do that? Well, I think to understand why he built this statue, we have to remember what John talked about last week. John talked about last week in Daniel chapter 2 that um, about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He had a dream, and remember he wanted all of the, the wise men to tell him what his dream was and then interpret it for him. And he was ready to kill them all because no one could do that. But God revealed it to Daniel, and Daniel explained. He says, well, here's what your dream means. This, this huge statue you saw with the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of a mixture of iron and clay, well, those are a bunch of different kingdoms. Your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, is the head of gold on the top, but there's going to be another that comes after you and another one after that and another one after that. And then he says, this big rock that comes in at the end of your dream and crushes the statue represents God's kingdom. Because his is the one that's going to last forever. His is the one that's going to crush all the other kingdoms of the world. And, you know, after Daniel explained this dream to him and the meaning of it, Nebuchadnezzar said this. It's really interesting. He says to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for, for you were able to reveal this mystery to me. And so it seems like, it sounds like he's, he's beginning to recognize God who God is, right? He's beginning to recognize that there is a God, there is a, a power out there, right? A God that has control over the things that happen in the world. But it seems like over time, and we're not exactly sure how much time passed between uh, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3, but it seems like over time, um, he began to go back to his old way of thinking. I, I can picture him, you know, sitting in his uh, bedroom in his palace and all of a sudden thinking, wait a minute. Who's this God to say that my kingdom's not going to last forever? I, I am the most, you know, the, the most powerful ruler that this world has ever known. My kingdom will never be conquered. You know, I don't care what any God says or what anybody else says. I am the one that controls my own fate. And I, and I can just imagine him having this conversation in his head. He's like, well, I'm going to show this God. I'm going to show everyone else that I'm not just the head of gold. I'm the whole statue of gold. And, and that my kingdom will last forever. And I will show any God or any man that the highest authority in my life is not them, but it is me, and I will make it happen any way possible. And so he builds this crazy big statue, and it's kind of his way of saying, take that, God, I'll show you who's in charge of my life. And, you know, this was the way that Nebuchadnezzar thought. This elevated view of himself and this thinking trickled down through the culture, and it was pre prevalent in their culture, you know, that you control your destiny and, and you take control, as long as you don't cross the king. You know, you take control of your life however you see fit, and you make happen what you want, and you get to decide the way that your life goes, and if it's good for you, then great. And that was the culture that these guys found themselves living in. And they were, they were living in a godless culture that was trying to... to force them to compromise and force them to um, conform when it came to their God and their way of life. You know, and I think for us today, it's not so different. Now, we don't live in quite a, a harsh or hostile culture. We don't have a, you know, a maniacal, um, angry king that likes to chop people up and, and uh, turn their houses into rubble, uh, although there are people around the world that do face those kinds of things still today. 
Uh, but for us, the pressure to conform, the pressure to compromise is much more subtle in our culture. Now, I would say it's not that much less powerful, but it's much, much more subtle. Because we live in a culture that's trying to convince us that, that God and his ways are no longer needed. They're no longer useful or helpful or necessary, and, and even that they're no longer good, or maybe that they never were good. And, you know, the best way that we can experience our life is by doing whatever pleases us and, and whatever helps us to get ahead, and, and whatever we think is right, then that's what's best for us. And God and his values are outdated, and they're, they're not needed anymore. They're just old-fashioned. We don't need him to tell us how to live our lives. We're our own authorities, and we get to decide what's best for us. You know, and so our culture says when it comes to you know, our finances, it's all about personal gain and getting as much as you can, and, and it's not about generosity and using what you have, what God's given you to build his kingdom. When it comes to our success, they say to achieve it by any means possible. You know, and forget about honesty and integrity. Those things don't matter that much. Success is what matters. Or when it comes to pleasure, our culture says, hey, if it feels good, go for it. Do it. Enjoy it. There's, there's no need to practice healthy restraint here. Do what makes you feel good. And when it comes to our sexuality, they say, you know, our culture says, enjoy it however you want it, whenever you want it, in whatever way that you desire. Not that, not that it was something that was designed by God for intimacy and marriage alone. That's its old-fashioned way of thinking. Or even, even good things in, in our lives, things like our family. Our culture um, pushes us to elevate them to the, you know, our families to the highest point. I think it should be one of our very, very top priorities, but we should never put our families above our relationship with God or above their own relationship with God. And you know, the whole idea of truth is being attacked. And you know, truth is seen as relative, and if science can't prove it, then it's not objective truth. And, and God is not the source of all truth. And we could go on and on and on as we describe the culture that we live in and experience today, but you know, the reality is, is, is these three guys, um, just like these three guys, we live in a culture that's becoming increasingly godless, and more and more, uh, those who choose to follow God with their lives are, are facing pressure to conform and to compromise the things that um, God values and the ways that God wants us to live. And you know, I, I, I get to work with students here at CCC and and I see this struggle for them all the time. It's, it's so heightened, especially in, in, in the middle school and high school years. And, you know, they, have, they hear things said and taught at school, and they hear the things their friends are talking about, and they see and hear and experience things in the media, and they have to wrestle with, well, how do I take that, what's all around me, and, and, and balance that with what my parents are saying and, and with what I'm learning here at church? And, and, and I watch them struggle with that. And, and, and we love to come alongside them and help them with that, but it's tough and it's difficult. But it's not just for high schoolers or middle schoolers. We all face that in our schools, in our jobs, in our, in our families. Uh, we experience it all around us. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about what do we do? What can we learn from what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did that helps us as we navigate a godless culture in our life? And, you know, they, they face this huge, massive decision whether to worship this idol or to lose their lives. And how are they able to stand in that moment and choose what was right? And as, I, as we look at, at the chapter as we, you know, that we just read, I think one of the things that's important for us to notice is that um, they didn't make their decision in that moment. 
Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't decide when the herald started talking and they realized what was happening that, hey, we probably shouldn't do this, should we? I think they had decided a long time ago. They maybe didn't know what was coming, but we can see glimpses of that in the chapters that come before. In chapter 2, you know, when King Nebuchadnezzar was ready to wipe them and all their peers out because they couldn't do his impossible task, they didn't accept his fate for their lies. They prayed to the God they knew that was actually in control and asked him to show up and do something. And in chapter 1, when they were brought from Jerusalem to Babylon and they were kind of immersed into this Babylonian university to learn their ways, they chose not to eat the food that the king gave them. They chose to stick to a diet that fit their way of life and their worship. My guess is these guys probably made their decision to take a stand as they navigated this culture in Babylon in the long trip from Jerusalem to the city of Babylon when they were taken captives. Or maybe it was even long before that. We don't really know. But you can see as you follow their story that, that their decision not to compromise was made before the moment they stood before this massive idol. And, and the choice to, to conform or to, to, um, um, to compromise is rarely made in the big moments. You see, you don't just simply decide to walk out on your marriage because you have one big argument. Right? It begins with little decisions all along the way. Uh, that, you know, decisions to disconnect, decisions to hold grudges, decisions to not forgive. You don't decide that in the moment of trying to make the biggest sale of your life that you're going to twist the truth just a little bit and you're going you're to tweak the numbers a little bit to help you accomplish that. No, you decide that long before in your career when you decide that you're going to achieve the success and do anything you need to to get ahead or to stay afloat. And I don't know of anyone that's ever sat down in front of a computer screen or with a phone in their hand and decided, today's the day I'm going to get addicted to pornography. But that happens with a whole bunch of little choices along the way. And it ends up leading them to somewhere they never meant to go. You know, the big moments like this, when we face those big moments in our lives, those, are, those decisions are made in the little moments that come before it, that precede it. You know, when you choose to make compromises along the way, they, they seem innocent enough, but, you know, I'll just bend the truth here, or I'll just manipulate the numbers here, or I'll just, it's just a few pictures here and there, or I'm just going to try it, I'm just going to do it just this one time. But those, those little decisions begin to build and to grow, and they leave us in a pretty vulnerable space because we don't have any foundation when we need to take that stand. You know, every time we choose something, Else, in the place of God, whether that's what we want or what someone else wants or whatever it is, when we place that above God and what he values, we're compromising. And, and these small decisions uh, to compromise build and compound, and they lead us to places we never intended to go, sometimes even unknowingly. You see, when it comes to, when it comes to compromise, we have, to, we have to decide beforehand what our choice is. We have to decide beforehand what our choice is going to be. We have to choose what's good and what's right and what's godly in the small decisions that lead up to it so we can stand and have a solid foundation to stand on in those big, huge, life-altering situations. Because we don't face those all the time, but we face little choices every day, whether we're going to stand or not. And you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they decided long before they stood in front of that statue that they were not going to compromise when it came to keeping God in his rightful place in their lives. They decided to trust him even with their lives because they knew that was the right thing for them to do. And so 
The question is for us today as we think about this and we, we consider the culture we live in, what are we going to choose? You know, will we choose to, to stand in those little areas, those little decisions, those little opportunities to compromise? Or will we give in? And, and, and what will that lead us to when the big tests come? One thing that I do know and I think that we see from, um, from Daniel chapter 3 here is that if you decide to take a stand in your life, if you decide not to compromise, it's not going to go unnoticed. Daniel and or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that their choice wasn't going to go unnoticed. That was pretty easy to figure out. When everybody bowed down and they didn't, they were going to stick out like crazy. And of course they did, and these guys that did not like them ran off, you know, the tattletale to the king and be like, oh, king, these Jews, they, they disrespect you, they disregard you, and they, they don't obey what you said, and, and uh, you know, they don't view you as the highest authority in their life. And as you can imagine, as, you, as we read, the king was furious, and he calls them ahead of him. Now, you have to understand that the king at the end of chapter 2 had just promoted these guys after Daniel had interpreted his dream. He liked these guys. They, were, they had proved themselves a couple times to be the best of the best, and they were helpful to him. All right? He actually did something that's quite surprising. He brings them to him, and he says, Is this true, you guys? Did you really not bow? Here, wait, let me give you one more chance. Right? He actually shows them a little mercy that I don't think he would show to too many people, and, and, he, and he gives them a chance, but he says, Just remember, if you don't, you're going in the furnace, and no God can save you. So it's not worth it. Don't do it. And I love the response that we see uh, from these three guys when, when they're facing the king and they're facing this life or death situation. They, they, their response to, this, to facing death is this kind of uncommon, confident humility. All right? Notice what they say. They say you know, to the king when he says, he says this to them, and they, their response is, we don't need to defend ourselves to you, king. Wasn't that the first thing that we typically do when we face opposition in our lives? Right? When we, when we, maybe we take a stand and we face a little opposition, we get defensive. Right? We want to defend ourselves and explain ourselves and justify why our position is right and try to convince those that, we're, uh, that are opposing us why they're wrong. And if that doesn't work, then we just get angry and we blast and condemn and judge. Right? We've all seen that happen in the Christian community. But for them, their goal wasn't to convince King Nebuchadnezzar to convince others. Their goal in standing was simply just to do what was right. And it's really interesting, you know, to see this, this confident humility they had that came out of their trust in God. And King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that at the end of the chapter. They say to him, they say, you know, our God is able to convince us, and he will. Or to, not convince us, huh, to deliver us, and he will. All right, now, I don't know how they knew that. I don't know if God told them that at one point in time, or if they just had this supreme confidence that, you know, just like happened in the last chapter, God was not going to let this king take their lives. I don't know where that came from, but they said, we are confident that he will not let us die in this way, that he will rescue us from your hand. But they go on to say, and this is great, they say, but even if he doesn't, we will never worship that idol or you or your gods. And we know our God can save us and we are confident that he will, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to choose to do what is right. We're still going to stand because that's what's right and that's what we believe in and we will not compromise our values and our beliefs for yours. And their response is so interesting because I think if we look at, at uh, you know, the Christian community in, in, in the United States where we live, we, 
we often don't see a, a reaction like that. We, we see people that want to blast each other on Facebook and we want to you know, condemn those that think differently than us and we want to, to defend ourselves and we want to convince others that we're right and that they're wrong. And I think one of the things that we can learn from this passage today is sometimes it's just enough to stand. Because what happens when we stand is our stand speaks for itself. The trust that they had in God was, was, was the fact that they didn't have to convince King Nebuchadnezzar who God was. They trusted God to do that. They just chose to do what's right because that's what they were asked to do. And one of the things that's true is that we can face opposition right, with that same confident humility that, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had if we trust that God is in control. And we believe that it's not our job to change others. It's not our job to convince others Right? But it's our job to love them and to do what's right and that God will use that to show himself to them. You know, the way that we respond to opposition displays our level of confidence in God. When, when we blast and judge and we, we try to defend ourselves, we're not showing the trust in God that we can have, that, that God's in control, that God will take and use this situation the way that he wants to. But that's exactly what we see happen here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Of course, the king did not like this response from them, and whatever little bit of mercy he was ready to extend them was quickly replaced with insane rage. And they had assaulted the very foundation of what he believed in. Right? They had assaulted the foundation of his whole world when they said to him that he is not the ultimate authority in their lives or even in his own life. And so, blind with rage and fury, he, he tells them to take that fiery furnace, and he's like, crank it up seven times hotter than it already is. Now, it was already hot enough, as any fire is, to kill somebody, but he wanted to make sure this made a point. And so, you know, they, they uh, tie the guy, these guys up, they crank up the heat, they take them up there, the guys that take them up die before they even get them over the edge, and, um, and these guys hit the ground in the furnace and should have been disintegrated immediately. But as much as fury and rage as Nebuchadnezzar had, now he was filled with uh, just confusion and was dumbfounded. As he's looking into the fiery furnace and he's, he thinks he's going crazy, he's like, he asked the guys around him, he's like, we did throw three guys in there, right? And they're like, yeah, three guys. He's like, you see four in there? They're like, yeah, we see four. He's like, that one kind of looks like an angel too. What's, go you know, what's going on here? So he's, he's dumbfounded by this. So, you know, the guy that thought that he could control the fate of these three men just saw that he had... No control whatsoever in this situation. And so he calls him out. He's like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get out here. Servants of the Most High God, he says. He's getting another glimpse of who God is. And he calls them to come out. They're, they're not harmed. And I love the fact that it says they don't even smell like smoke. You know, I can't grill a hot dog on my grill without smelling like smoke for the rest of the night. And these guys come out of the fiery furnace with nothing. And, uh, but, but God had showed up just like they said that he would, and, and, and he saved them. And, and it made King Nebuchadnezzar have to stop and think and reevaluate the way he saw the world and the way he saw himself. Now, I don't think at this point in his life he made a conversion and became a, you know, a true follower of God, um, but I do think that he realized in that moment that, again, for the second time in two chapters, that there's a God out there that's a bigger than me, and he's at work in this world in a way that I have no control over. And God used Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's stand right, to show himself to a godless king and to a godless culture. And, uh, you know, it would be really, really fun as a speaker to, to take this chapter and to stand before you and, and, and tell you that, you know, if you choose to take a stand for God, that he's going to show up in some 
crazy and miraculous way and save you from the fire you find yourself in. And people have stood up and said that, but I can't, I can't do that this morning. And it's not because I don't think that God can or that God ever does do that, but as I look at this chapter, I've never seen another time after this where God doesn't let someone burn when they fall into a fire. Not in the Bible and not in throughout church history. Plenty of people stood for their faith and they got burned at the stake. But what I... Because I, I don't think that's really the point of the chapter. As, as fun and as motivational, as inspirational as that may be, I don't think that's the point that, that the author's trying to make here, that God saved them from the fire, even though he did. I think the point is that God used their stand to reveal himself to a godless culture. You know, that there is one that is greater than King Nebuchadnezzar who thinks he is here. And there is one that's greater than this 90-foot statue behind him. And there is one that can save these three guys from this blazing inferno. There is a source of goodness and a source of truth and a source of power beyond this world. And even though I can't promise you that God will save you from the fires that you face in your life when you take a stand, I can promise you that he will be with you as he was with them and that he will use it. See, the reality is, is God wants to use your refusal to compromise in your life to show himself to our godless culture. Now, it's probably not going to be quite as spectacular as these three guys experienced here in Daniel 3, but, but those people that are watching you as you take a stand, they're going to take notice when you do. Right? They're going to be left with, with, uh, with an impression. They'll be like, wow, you know, they risked a lot to take that stand. And they're going to be left with questions. They're going to be like, why would someone choose to take a stand when it costs them something instead of gain them something. Or, or, or it's going to give them something to ponder. You know, who would take a stand when everything all around them says, just do it your way, or is pressuring you to, to give in? I, I think the idea that, that God has for us this morning out of this chapter that I really want to focus in on is this one, is that a godless culture sees God through those who refuse to compromise. That, that your refusal to compromise in your life, not just in the big things, but even in the small little things along the way, they may cost you, but God will be with you through them, and he's going to use that. He can use that to show himself through it. There's something really powerful about seeing someone choose to do what's right, even when it costs them something instead of gaining something. You know, so, so if you're in a relationship and, and, and you're trying to figure out, you know, where do I draw the line when it comes to uh, our sexuality in this relationship? And you draw the line here and the person you're with is like, oh, see ya. If that's where you're drawing the line, then I'm out of here. It may cost you something in, those, in that moment, but I guarantee your stand will not leave their memory for a long time. And you may not see its effect immediately, probably not. And you may not even get to see it down the road, but I can guarantee that God will use that in their lives. Why would, why would they draw the line there? Why would they do that? Or, or, or when it comes to you know, honesty in your job and you take a stand and, and maybe it costs you a sale or maybe it costs you a promotion or that bonus that you needed one more sale to get, you know, people around you are going to notice. Why would you choose to do that when all you had to do was twist some figures? You know, maybe you've got a friend and, and you need to take a stand because you see some things in their life where areas where they're compromising and you know it's going to take them a place they don't want to go. And so you stand up and, you, and, and you, you speak that truth to them in love. It might cost you that friendship, at least in the short term. But I guarantee that friend's going to walk away and eventually realize you loved them enough to speak the truth to them. 
You know, when we, we make a choice to, to stand up and to challenge the culture around us, it often costs us something, but God can use that. God will use that, and he wants to use that to show himself to a world that thinks they don't need him. You know, and so as we, as we think about this chapter and as we, we think about the story of these three men that, that maybe is really familiar to us, uh, I think that what we need to walk away with and, and what I, I hope you'll walk away with today is, is um, a chance to, to think about your life and, and what are the areas in your life where maybe you are tempted to compromise. And this week I hope that you'll take some time, maybe even later today, and identify what are some areas in your life where you're tempted to compromise. Not the big, huge ones, not necessarily the life-altering ones, but the small, little ways. You know, maybe it's in the area of finances, or, or, or maybe it has to do with your family relationships, or, or relationships with friends or, or that you're in, or, or maybe it has to do with your, your sexuality, or maybe it has to do with, you know, just your, your desire to, to be successful, or maybe your desire to have control of the things in your world. I don't know what it is for you, but I bet you probably already do. Because I can think of the ones for me. I've been thinking about them all week. All right? Because we're pretty well aware of the areas where we're tempted to compromise, where we're tempted to put our way above God's ways, where we're tempted to, to not trust God and to trust ourselves. We're pretty well aware of those. And if you're not, that's okay. Find someone that knows you well and that loves you and ask them the ways that they may see you compromising in your life. And and, and let them share those with you. And once we identify the areas, and I had someone say to me earlier today, there's a whole bunch. I'm like, well, just start with one, not 15. Just pick one. Start with one area. What's one area? And once you do that, then need to, to learn what God's word says about it. Maybe you know that already. Maybe you understand it enough, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're not real sure. Maybe you have to wrestle with that. Maybe you need to find someone that's a little wiser than you that can help you navigate through God's word and what it says about that area of your life. And if you don't have someone like that, write it on the back of your card, and one of us pastors would be happy to, 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 to follow up with you and to, to, uh, to resource you in any way that we can to help you with a certain area in your life to learn what God says. Then comes the hard part. The hard part is not identifying them and learning what God says, but the hard part's this, deciding now that you'll take a stand in this area in your life. We have to decide, because remember, we have to decide beforehand. If we wait until we're in the heat of the moment, it's probably too late. We have to decide now that you will take a stand. And, and maybe you have to set some boundaries in, your, in, in this area that are super specific to you. And, and, and it's not that, you may be, that you're, from this day forward you're going to be perfect in this area. We are all going to continue to make mistakes the rest of our lives. But what's the pattern all right, that your choices are showing about what's most valuable in your life, what the highest authority is in your life? You have to decide beforehand to take a stand. And, and then I think the last thing that we can pull from this passage is that we have to cement those decisions Cement your stand with community. You've got to get the right people around you. I don't think it's an accident that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, you know, and Daniel, they're always together, all right? But I don't think it was an accident that they stood together in this story, all right? Because I can imagine if I was one of those guys and the music starts playing, I'd have been like, are you guys sure about this? Like, I'm just going to tie my sandal while the music's playing, all right? Music's done, good. Hey, you guys stood? All right, you know, I would be me. I'd be the compromise guy all the time. I'd be like pretend to pick up a penny or something while the music's playing and, and find some way to get out of it. But we need people around us, right, when we decide that we're going to take a stand in an area in our life that can help us and hold us accountable and that can remind us when we're not making that choice to stand in our lives. So we have to identify our areas, learn what God says, 
Decide now that you'll take the stand and, and cement it with getting the right people around you. And this has been a really challenging you know, week for me as, as I've worked through this and, and different areas in my life. And, and, I, and I hope it's challenging for you too because um, what's at stake for us is huge because we live in a world that's much like the world that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced in Babylon. A, a world, a culture that's moving quickly farther and farther away from God and his values. Even, even living in a nation that was founded on Christian principles, we find ourselves you know, moving farther and farther and farther away from God as a society. And, and we have a choice. We can do one of two things. We can either bemoan that fact, right? We can complain that, that uh, you know, our culture is, is becoming so godless, or we can take a stand and try to show them the God that knows them and loves them and wants a relationship with them. I heard someone say recently, the darker that our culture gets, the darker that the world gets, the brighter the light of Jesus can shine through us to that dark world. And, and, and think of the, the difference that we could make as individuals and, and, and together as a church. You know, in our culture, if we would take a stand and refuse to compromise and, and to let God be seen through our stand in, in a culture that desperately needs him. I'll say it again just to wrap up. A godless culture sees God through those who refuse to compromise, through those who refuse to take him out of the place that he belongs in their life, that, who refuse to elevate themselves and what they want above what God's want. So this week, together, let's, let's refuse to compromise and let's let those around us and, and that godless culture we find ourselves in see God through that and let him use that to show himself to them. Pray with me as we close. God, Thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that you are a God that is present in our lives. And you are a God that's powerful. And you are, you are a God that can, uh, can save us from fiery furnaces. And God, though you don't always choose to do that, help us to be willing to take a stand no matter what the cost is in our lives, God. Not, not so that we can look good, not so that um, you know, we can think of ourselves as so great, but God, so that those around us can see that through our refusal to compromise, that they get a glimpse of you, and they get a glimpse that there's something more to this life, something more worth living for. And God, I just pray that you would help us this week to identify those areas in our lives, help us to choose to stand 